everyone. Welcome back to Generational Differences. It's Hillary and Hannah here. Um, and before we get started with what we're going to talk about today, just want to check in. Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, we had to get up really early today, <laughs> and so I'm a little, little tired, a little out of it, um, but I think I'll be able to get it together for today's podcast. How about you? Yeah, I mean, kind of same. We got up at 6 a.m., uh, yeah. to drive to a 7 a.m. dentist appointment right when they opened. And that doesn't, maybe it doesn't sound too crazy, but it's a bit of an endeavor just because our parents moved last year uh, from the burbs in Oregon, the suburbs, to like 20 minutes outside of the suburbs, which becomes much more rural. And so they live on a road that has very little, very few streetlights, uh, it was very windy. It also snowed for the last like two weeks. And so there was potentially ice, um, but also a lot of rain this morning. So anyway, I'm just being super dramatic about the fact that <laughs> I had to drive Hana to her dentist appointment. Yeah, to clarify, this was my dentist <laughs> appointment. Um, and I got, a, I got a few cavities filled today. And so that's why I'm a little out of it. And my, my mouth is finally starting to feel normal. So Okay, should we get started with our main topic for today? Yeah, sounds good. So today we're going to talk about work, passion, and parental expectations. We're also going to talk about our fears and phobias, share some recent book recs from Asian American writers, and we'll wrap it up by learning a couple more Gen Z slang words. But before we jump in, um, there are a couple of things I wanted to revisit from our first episode. Um, a topic that came up as we were talking about mental health and Asian American immigrant parents was the question of exactly why um, our parents grew up not really understanding mental health um, and, and forming a kind of stigma against mental health based on their upbringing in China. And something I mentioned was just wishing that I understood more about the history of mental health in China, the resources that are there, and why it has been long stigmatized there. I did a little bit of research before this episode that I found really interesting and I wanted to share it. Um, and first and foremost, it's not because mental health is not an issue in China. Uh, according to the WHO, depression and anxiety are very common mental health disorders in China. They are actually the two most common. Um, and 54 million people in China suffer from depression. About 41 million suffer from anxiety disorders. Mm. And so it's really not because it's not an issue. It's actually more related to history, kind of concepts in Chinese culture and upbringing that play into it that we'll talk about and then also insufficient mental health resources mm. and so first in terms of history uh, I read a 2020 New York Times article from Vivian Wong and Javier Hernandez and a 2011 article in the Canadian Medical Association journal from Suzanne Ma and I learned that in the late 1960s in particular which is actually exactly when our parents were born and grew mm. up in China yeah. um, and that was the Mao Zedong era um, Mao Zedong declared mental illness a delusion of the upper class. He outlawed psychiatry and he dismantled the country's psychiatric system. And so then I was really surprised to find out that mentally ill patients were taken from hospitals sometimes and sent to labor camps and their illnesses were attributed to a lack of appreciation and understanding of the class struggle. So it became a communist versus capitalist uh, kind of narrative instead yeah. of really understanding mental health at all. Mm -hmm. And so then, based on that history, I guess I'm not surprised at all that our parents growing up during that time were taught different, like these kinds of things by the Chinese government. Um, they mm -hmm. internalized them in certain ways, maybe, and maybe they saw them play out in their family. Then, if we fast forward to today in Chinese society, discrimination against those with mental health issues still persists. A lot of people with mental illness are shunned, ostracized hidden by family members, confined in institutions. Uh, Chinese society looks down on people with mental illness. They don't think they have the same abilities to thrive yeah. and work and learn. Um, and then there's, I also read an article where they talked about the concept of losing face, which I thought was interesting because Hana and I definitely grew up uh, like hearing that term in Chinese and understanding it as uh, not not wanting to lose face, meaning not really wanting to bring shame to your yeah. family. And it plays into all the concepts in Chinese uh, society and households about respecting the family, respecting your parents, things like that. Um, and so with that concept at such 
a forefront of Chinese society, it makes it even harder to seek help when you're struggling. And then I mentioned also insufficient mental health resources, and I read a 2019 article in General Psychiatry that said um, that there are vastly insufficient mental health resources and service capacity in China, um, even now. I mean, that article's from 2019. And so that's in terms of investment from the Chinese government for psych hospitals, the number of hospital beds, number of mental health professionals. Um, and on that note, I will say, I also read that psychiatry is still not seen as a really respectable profession in China. And so mm -hmm. there's less incentive for people to uh, join that profession. It actually is interesting also because it wasn't really until the coronavirus pandemic, which was which is ongoing um, and is such a recent topic, um, that the the country was really forced to confront the idea of mental health as a challenge that the people are facing. Um, and now more and more people are asking the Chinese government to address the rise in depression, anxiety, insomnia, mm -hmm. things like that, that are brought on by COVID outbreaks, quarantine, really the complete shift yeah. in what our society looks like. And on the topic of our parents and their context for mental health, uh, I wanted to also share with our audience that our mom actually listened to episode one. She <laughs> was really adamant that she wanted to listen to it. Right. And so I pretty much prepped her. I was like, okay, you know, listen to the whole thing. Don't freak out. <laughs> yeah. We talk a little bit about our parents, things like that. Hopefully it'll just lead to a better understanding between all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to share with you all that she actually had really positive feedback about it. Um, it was really great to hear that she was interested to hear kind of the things we'd gone through, mm -hmm. how we were thinking about mental health. Um, and then it was really sweet because she said, also, I want you all to know that you can talk to me. We might not totally understand, but we want to understand. Right. Um, and I, I think we both appreciate that yeah, sentiment. Yeah, that was so nice. That was nice to hear. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about work, passion, parental expectations, I think this is a topic I've probably talked about with all of my friends, my Asian American ones, but just also my other friends mm -hmm. that are not Asian American, just because work is such a big part of our lives in the United States. A lot of the times it's, it defines who we are. Like when we meet people, we ask, oh, what do you do? You know, it's such a big thing that we identify with. And then also, especially in the Asian American community and immigrant communities generally, there's a lot of parental expectations tied to work um, yeah. in your career. And so as a young person, I think our parents put a lot of pressure on us um, to choose a particular career path, for example. Uh, we can talk about that. We also then, for me at least, it led to a lot of struggles with my parents, a lot of conflict with them over what I wanted to do with my life versus what they wanted to do. Uh, that's kind of an ongoing battle, but it's definitely changed and evolved over time. And so I want to share my personal experience with that. Hannah will share her experience, especially as she's exploring what she wants her career to look like. And then um, we'll also share our parents' path. And so actually, to reverse that order a little bit, I'm going to start with our parents' path because I think it's important to give that context uh, first. Mm -hmm. And so very briefly, our parents are immigrants from China. And so in the late 1980s, early 1990s, both of them immigrated from China to the United States and they moved to Oregon and settled here where they now have lived for the past uh, few decades. Yeah. And in terms of work and career, I think our dad's story highlights a lot of, a lot of context and background that reflects why they think the way they do maybe about career. And so our dad in China, he was first a teacher uh, out of college, and then he went on to pursue his doctorate, his PhD in philosophy. Um, and it was around that time, college and grad school, that he really developed a love for scholarship, for research, uh, for writing, and he, he loved it. He, he always talks about it um, in a very positive way. And when he came to the United States, um, it was really to follow our mom who was coming here for business school. Um, and so when he got here, he wanted to continue working on his research and uh, doing a lot of more reading and writing, but 
at least at first, he had to find a job that was more financially stable because right. my mom, our mom was in school and he was really, um, like she was going to depend on him to bring enough money home to support yeah. her. And then also she was very soon after pregnant with me. And so they were planning to, you know, have a family and that's expensive. Also, our mom also wanted to teach, right? Well, our she mom. did teach. Yeah. So that's right. So our mom was also a teacher in China, and she has always enjoyed that. She's always mm-hmm. loved being an educator. And so then when she came to the U.S., uh, she really pivoted to business. Yeah. I kind of feel like with our mom, it's practical, but then she also says she loves her job. That's true. Um, so maybe she was able to find something that she truly uh, mm-hmm. resonated with. Yeah. Which I, I think just, is lucky. I think that's lucky, too. She also, all I remember is that she also was writing a thesis for a PhD, right, with my dad. You know, so... I think it shows sacrifices on a lot of levels, even if they were at different points of like where, you know, what, how certain they were and what they wanted to do. That's, yeah, that's a good point. But then also our dad, when he came, so he, so I was saying he was uh, trying to find a job that was financially stable. Mm-hmm. So he started to work in restaurants because that was kind of like the easiest tie they had to the Chinese community in Oregon. They met people who were also Chinese who were able to get connections for him. So then he started working in restaurants and then he ended up owning his own restaurant. And he really was like invested in the restaurant business for a long time. And it was, I think, somewhere during that process that he realized that he wasn't really going to be able to continue pursuing his academic passions. And from the conversations I've had with him, that felt like a really sad realization. Yeah, yeah. He said that like he tried to apply for grants um, at top universities in the U.S. and they just didn't have the resources to fund him, even if they found his research interesting. But I think more importantly, it was just all of the stress and the time and the burden of um, having a first kid, me, (laughs) and then supporting a family, buying a house, like right, becoming uh, really establishing a life in the in a new country is comes with so many challenges um that are so time consuming and energy consuming i think it's what they wanted for themselves but more so they wanted it for us right and so then i think that going back to the guilt piece it's like they came here for us they sacrificed everything um, including their passions and then we turn around and we're like well we want to do what we're passionate about and they're like well we want you to be financially stable and that's kind of the impasse that we we often find ourselves at yeah i i've also talked a little bit with our parents about their work journey and i think a lot of the questions that were that they were asking themselves at the time when they first immigrated to america were specifically like looking at what type of jobs have the best market prospects, the best long-term stability, mm. and things like that. So very different from the types of choices that we have now, essentially. Right. I don't. I've never looked at that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which I think maybe maybe that's a problem. But so in some ways, I think that they they are they were guided by those questions, and so they and they still are when they think about our own career. Yeah. Or at least with you growing up, you know, a lot of the questions that they probably thought about for you were similar to the ones they asked themselves when they first came. And so, yeah. And also our parents have always sort of told us that hard work is the most important thing. And they've obviously worked extremely hard. And so that's become an element of how they view work for us and how we should never give up in our hard work. Success is generally defined by financial stability and always has been to them. Yeah, exactly. And so when you mentioned kind of how that's impacted me, that that's a really great segue into talking about my own path. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, I think at least starting in middle school, if not earlier, maybe earlier, um, really my parents wanted me to be a doctor. That was the beginning. And throughout middle school and high school, I did a lot of extracurriculars, took a lot of classes uh, related to science, math, um, like doing volunteer work in hospitals, things like that, science fairs, you know, like all of the things that you were supposed to do if you wanted to eventually apply to medical school. And so that was just kind of like what I knew was my path. It was not something I thought critically about. I was young. Uh, My mom kind of, I thought my mom just like could decide things for me and knew what was best for me, Mm -hmm. which I think in some ways she did, Mm -hmm. but I just never critically examined what I was doing. 
and if I enjoyed it. And also, I think at the time I did enjoy it. Like I liked succeeding in certain areas of science and math and learning different things. Um, so then I took that to college and I entered college as pre-med, was looking at like a bio major. I feel like this is your ultimate stereotypical Asian story here. Um, So I started at Emory taking all these science classes, really doing terribly, like so bad (laughs) and never feeling like it was something that I, that could pick up easily or uh, came naturally to me. In college. Right. In college. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I think when things don't come easily, my reaction started to be like, well, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. But my parents' reaction is, well, maybe you should work harder and yeah. you'll get it. Yeah. Because, and to them, it's like, we believe in how smart you are. We believe in what you can do. Um, and there's really, it's not a question of like, oh, maybe I should change. Mm-hmm. And when I don't want to work harder or I want to change, it's seen more as like quitting or just not being strong enough to continue. Mm-hmm. So that's also a, a divide that we've experienced. Um, but anyway, so I went, I continued to take science classes, uh, pretty much almost failed orgo classic. Um, and then around junior year was kind of when I started looking internally and thinking about what I was actually doing with my life and thinking about what I want. Cause I think that's the point when like I started thinking about what I wanted to do after graduation and I felt really stuck thinking about medical school. Right. And so then I started thinking about like what the things I was doing outside of class and I was doing a lot of social justice work. Uh, at one point I really wanted to be like a full-time activist, which probably my parents' worst nightmare. Um, but you know, props to people who do that full-time. And so then I was exploring other options that would be acceptable to my parents and also interest interested me. And so that's kind of where I came to law because I was doing some policy work on campus, Mm. um, diversity work. And so I actually went to law school thinking I wanted to do public health law, not really knowing what that was, but it was kind of carrying over some of that pre-med energy. And I actually made a PowerPoint to convince our parents that, Did you? yeah, <laughs> but I made a PowerPoint to tell them like all the careers that public health lawyers can oh. have. Wow. They were really like, like the fact that you had to make a PowerPoint. They were like, prove it. Like they were like, prove that you're not going to be homeless essentially. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Cause they, I guess to back up the conversation when I told them I wanted to shift from pre-med was not good. Yeah. Um, it was just a lot of fighting. Yeah. And then eventually I was like, okay, let me just prove to you that, you know, this is something that's really realistic. And so I made a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I talked about salary. I talked about like what the options were potentially. So then I went to law school and that's where I decided I didn't want to do public health law. And I actually wanted to do civil rights law and poverty law and public interest law. Um, and so now I, I am a uh, immigrant justice attorney. I do policy work um, at a nonprofit, and I have been practicing as a public interest attorney for the last four or four years now. That has been wait no three years, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I actually start left law school and went to be a corporate attorney for almost a year, and that was exciting for my parents. They loved that because I made six figures straight out of law school. Um, it's incredibly stable and it's just like kind of like the dream job for Asian uh, Asian Americans in law. But then shortly after that, I realized I hated it and didn't want to have my soul sucked out every day. And so then I transitioned to nonprofit. And that is where the height of our conflict happened. Because I think the whole time it was like medical medicine is cool. Law is okay. Corporate law sounds great. You know, continue doing what you're doing. And then now it's like, Oh, public interest law. And to be very honest, it was hard for me too. When I left corporate law, I took a pay cut of over $100,000. Had to revisit my budget completely. Luckily, my partner and I could still manage it. Um, But I made a huge sacrifice in salary for my happiness. And that is truly not something that our parents understood. No. And now they're they're understanding it more and more as I you know gain more I get more years into practice and yeah. do like make more money. I think at the time it sort of came like as a betrayal almost like our mom was very like, it was almost like a personal type of hurt like how could you ever? Yeah, I definitely got that feeling, and that's really hard. 
Like, I don't want people to think that I was just like, okay, like, F it. I'm <laughs> changing jobs. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone says. Like, it was really difficult. I made the leap because I knew that it was what was going to be the best for me. It was like public interest is what I'm passionate about and I want to dedicate my life to it. But the conversations with my parents really made me doubt that in some ways, really made me feel bad. Like I felt like I was betraying them in some ways because they set me up for such success in their minds. Like they came here, did so much for us, like we were talking about. Um, and then now I was I was undermining all of that. Well, because their definition of success was the financial stuff. Right. And so to you, it was kind of, it, was, it just like wasn't lining was, up with their definition. Yeah, exactly. And I think they didn't understand that, like the idea of having a definition of success that was based in happiness and passion. Because like, right. that seems frivolous. Yeah, and it was also just always our our parents' idea was that your corporate law makes a ton of money therefore you should be happy so then why are you even changing like that that's gonna make you really unhappy right 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 yeah it's gonna that's gonna make you unhappy and also like you're young you should work hard now you should make money now you should not be so weak as to have to quit something that's hard because i think they were equating like unhappy being unhappy with thinking it was too difficult or not wanting to work hard um, when in reality that's not the case like public interest attorneys <laughs> work hard like really yeah. hard um, but there was there was definitely that that level of disagreement too so I think before we talk more about kind of broadly like how we see work and passion I want uh, would love to hear about Hana's path and how your thoughts on those uh, topics have changed yeah I think I have a little bit of a different experience from Hillary I think that our parents learned a lot of things from Hillary and by the time that you decided that you wanted to do public interest and stuff, I think I was still deciding, right, my what I wanted to do in college and stuff like that. Like yeah. I, I didn't have any set idea, really. And so... Right, yeah, you were just starting college. Yeah, and I think maybe I, it could be that part of what they learned from you was that this whole thing where we uh, reaffirm and, like, guide guide our children in a very specific direction like pre-med might not be the most effective obviously they were still like yeah you need to find something financially stable but like what do you like and what are you passionate about so what a novel (laughs) idea (laughs) i put them through the ringer so that you could have (laughs) have that yes thank you hillary you're welcome (laughs) yeah and so for me i think a big part of finding what i wanted to do was more so a personal struggle of like what am I passionate about Mm. where is that passion and how am I gonna find it and what happens if I don't find a passion like what am I gonna do and so I think a lot of value personal value was tied to finding that passion and Mm. like being either really good at something or like very interested in a certain area and I think those two go hand in hand like yeah all the way through high school I felt this pressure and this inability essentially to identify with what I really 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 wanted to do and then when I got to college I was like I don't know what I want to do still yeah yeah. I kind of bounced between a few majors and I did have a lot more choice than Hillary and like I guess it's not choice right it was more just like you knew what you wanted to do what you thought you wanted to do and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Or I, I'm just maybe overly confident in what I think I want to do at the time. <laughs> and then I just go for it. And I think that's maybe just a difference in our personalities. I didn't yeah. look at all the options necessarily. I just go and then I hope that it turns out right. And if it doesn't, I change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's interesting and great that Hana wanted to take the time to really think about this more critically and explore the options. But it does sound tough to feel a lot of pressure to have, mm-hmm. like, a sense of direction. And it's not, like, necessarily that I wanted to explore options. It's just, like, I had these options and I didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. them. And I also had very vague ideas about what career was supposed to be. And failure was tied in, into that, not wanting to be perceived as a failure by my parents. What happened ended up happening was, in college, I found a major I really liked. And so I was just like, okay, I'm going to pursue this and for me that was sociology and it's just what I liked learning about and so how does that tie into what you want to do long term or how you're thinking about that 
I haven't really given a lot of thought as to what my career will look like long term. That's not how I've looked at my career, at least. Even though you know, I sometimes feel like feels like I need to. Yeah, and actually, based on what you just said, uh, my bad because I I feel like I just played directly into a framework of valuing or like identifying long term career and long term plans as something that's really critical. Um, and that's something I actually don't want to do because I've been thinking about this and how we place a lot of uh, importance on that, and we always want to, you know, push ourselves or push others to think about what they want to do in the future when it's really okay to to not know and to not always be thinking about that and to just take it like one decision one day at a time. Yeah, and that's that's the way I've seen my career since like growing up. I've had many ideas of what I might like to do. But I was never really like, yeah, this is what I'm gonna commit to, and this is what I'm gonna start prioritizing. You know, going to college, I think I not only found an area that I liked, but also realized that there are a lot of alternative streams of what work can be for people in America. And you know, like for our parents, that was like the American dream. For other people, it could be working to serve others. Beyond that, there's so many other ones like. Work as passion. You know, if you have a passion, that's great. You can do that for work, or faith-driven work and things like that. And so, learning that sort of made me reflect back on what I wanted to do in the past, and how different those things have been. A lot of the dreams that I had that I committed to in high school have changed a lot, and since then, I think my values have broadened a lot. And so, for me, the meaning that I find in my own work. Has never really been black and white. It's both about stability and interest for me,、mm-hmm. and I don't feel like I have to sacrifice one or the other. I also, on that point, I've been thinking a lot about a similar idea, like what work means to different people. Like you're saying,、mm-hmm. and I think one other area is like some people work just to make money and just to support their family, or just to be able to travel or be able to have nice things.、Um, yeah. And I used to judge people like that a lot,、mm-hmm. admittedly. Uh, like when I was in corporate law, I was like, these people hate their jobs and they just make a lot of money. And th- is that like is that happiness? But I was I realized that I was really imposing my understanding of happiness and what work should be on others.、Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that anymore. I feel like I had like some sort of complex about myself where I was just like, well, I'm you know this passionate like public interest attorney. I'm like you know. We're doing good. We're trying to change the world. Like that's really you have to have some sort of passion where you're committed to something that drives you. But why? You know,、yeah. like that's coming from a place where I'm also judging other people for what they're doing. And like,、sure. I think work can be meaningful for people in different ways. And if they have different goals, we shouldn't, yeah, you know, impose our own goals on them. Agree, agree. And I. When I was younger, I was sort of just like a mini you, so I also <laughs> I also thought those things about people. And when I think my values started to shift a little bit, you know, thinking more about financial stability as something I wanted to prioritize for my happiness,、mm-hmm. I sort of was like in this conflict where I was like, well, I have these values that my best friend, my sister, has told me my whole life, and so I'm like, I really want to meet those expectations for myself. And then obviously that with our parents and stuff, it just became this whole, this whole like okay, I really just need to sit down and look at what work means to me, yeah, and find out more about myself. I think what it boils down to for me is that like social context for people is everything. It plays a really significant role in how and where people end up finding meaning in their work. You can obviously see that with our parents and how they find happiness in their work. For us, as sisters now, as second generation immigrants. We have a lot more agency、mm-hmm. in our social context. Meaning and work for me is a lot about not seeing passion as something set. I think for you as well, right? Yes, like, trying to learn that. Yes, yeah, something that I think I've had to nurture and should be encouraged to be nurtured. It's not just like one day you're gonna wake up and think this is what I want to do. Also, seeing that it's something that can change and something that you learn and grow from and grow in and out of within different stages of your life. Yeah, and I think what Hana was just saying really spoke to me because it shows me how my framework has impacted her in both positive and negative ways, and I think that's something we don't 
talk about a lot between the two of us, but also in societies, like how does being a, an older sister, a, a good role model in certain ways, um, then kind of sometimes reflect back and create some sort of, you know, negative impact or trauma or whatever's happening. Because I think I used to always see like passion driven work as something that should be purely motivational like Hana should also follow her passion Hana should find mm-hmm. her dreams and she should do art for a living or she should um, yeah. be a sociologist like she should find this passion and identify with it like I do with mine and make it her career and I have only recently through talking to her and talking to others about work realized that that's really toxic like that's well unintentionally right sure (laughs) yeah 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 but unintentional or not it can create a toxic pressure on your younger siblings your close friends whoever you're putting that on um so it's it's really important to me to reflect on that final takeaways i personally want people to to not feel like they have pressure to identify by a passion because that was something i really struggled with growing up and i think if you have a passion that's great you should follow it and you should you know do what you'd like with it but if you're faced with familial pressures to do that it's not that serious you don't need to feel that way and you can think more about how interests change and how they ebb and flow just like you do as you grow up and so yeah and what i want people to take away is just broadening that understanding of what might be meaningful for other people or even if it's not meaningful just what's important for other people as they're discovering what they want to do with their work and uh, with their interests and their lives and having more patience when those differ from my own um, and that's directly related to my parents and just having more patience with them as we continue along the journey um, of discussing the divide <laughs> that we face as I continue mm-hmm. on as a public interest attorney and they uh, still want me to balance that with financial stability which is also something I want it's just not priority number one all right we're gonna move on to our next segment where we're going to talk a little bit briefly about books that we've read recently by AAPI authors. And Larry's going to go first. Yeah, love reading books by Asian American authors. Got to get that representation. So I just have a couple recs. Uh, I have actually could go on, but I wanted to start the segment by sharing two books I read recently. Uh, first is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. It's a memoir. Um, by Michelle, who talks about essentially the death of her mother and how that has tied into her Asian American identity, her life, grieving, things like that. It is, I mean, it's a content warning for sure in terms of like grief um, and like depression and anxiety and things like that. But it is a beautiful memoir. It is, it spoke to me in so many different ways, especially because she talks about food a lot, Asian food and how like it's really a love language for mm. uh, immigrant parents. And yeah. so really recommend that in terms of um, nonfiction at least. And then if you haven't heard or read anything by Ocean Vong, get your hands on On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. And that sounded too much like an ad, but go check out On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. It is just some of the most poetic writing I've ever read. And I don't want to like really say much more about that. It's it's a work of fiction, oh, so fiction. just go read it. It's beautiful. Okay, so for my my recommendation, uh, I recently read a book called In Order to Live, and it's actually a book that Hillary bought for me. And um, not really used to reading a lot of books in general. <laughs> in general, period. No, no, no. I'm not used to really reading a lot of books by API authors, and so it was great to read this book and. I think if you want like an easy starter read, it's a good book because the writing is very blunt and straightforward, easy to follow. Um, but essentially, it's a narrative by the author Puck Yunmi. It's a memoir about her life growing up and her story of how she defected from North Korea with her mother. And it's a very gripping story about bravery. Yep. And also our mom read it when Hana brought it home. And I think books and literature, not to get too deep again, but it's a way that we bridge the generational divide with our mom, mm-hmm. at least. And our dad. Like, we yeah. buy each other books, we read the same books, we talk about them, um, and it's a really great way to connect. All right, so now that we're done with books, let's move on to a totally different topic, fears and phobias. Uh, do you want to start or do you want me to start? 
Um, you can start. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we were talking about this last night and I was trying to understand the difference between fears and phobias, first of all. And I think like phobia is more of like a, a more of much more intense fear. I'm sure there's a much better mm. clinical definition, but in terms of phobias, I feel like my only fear that borders on phobia uh, is deep water yeah. and oceans. Which and, I also have. Which Hana also has. Uh, to a lesser degree, but yeah. And I, we think it goes back to childhood uh, <laughs> memories of being like tossed in a pool. To learn how to, to swim. To learn how to swim. Okay, it's like swimming lessons. Oh my God, all I remember is like our mom would hold me and be like, it's going to be fine. I was a baby. And then she would let go of me. And I in would, a pool. And in a pool and see if I could float back up. Like w- that is... Were you wearing like float... Like a lifesaver? No. Lifesaver? Like just, Life jacket? A, just a swim swimming suit or whatever oh my God. I just remember I actually do have a memory of like me looking in like in while being dunked <laughs> into water at my, our mom drifting further <laughs> away oh well so there's that memory of our mom doing that to us and then <laughs> and then I also have a a memory from when I was at the beach in college which is oh. a very long time after oh but I got pulled in by a riptide oh <gasps> I knew yeah. this is really dumb because I knew there were riptides I and I was know like, if you told me the story. Yeah. But I was like, I got this. And so, and I don't got this because I don't really riptide? like a big wave. <laughs> <laughs> so God, you ask a lot of questions where I'm then sorry. I'm like I really... forced to defend the definitions of the words I use, which is always hard. So riptides in my understanding, yeah, knowledge, yeah. not an expert. Um, it's just like when, be- when the waves and the tide is strong enough that it can pull you out. Oh, okay. So there were riptides out there. They knew it to be a fact. And I went in the water anyway, not really knowing how to swim. By yourself? No, I was with some friends. Oh, that's the other thing. You don't really know how to swim, like, in the ocean. Not well. Like, yeah. Not well and also not in the ocean. Like, I could do a lap. And you were just like, I'm going to do it today. Yeah. And then a riptide pulled me out, started to pull me out, and I was like yelled my friend's name that is the scariest thing yeah and i was like oh my god help help like someone get me and they were like swim (laughs) against the wave and i was like okay there's no way in crap that i'm gonna be able to swim against the wave i don't even know what direction i'm facing right now i don't know where the wave is i don't know how to swim well (laughs) yeah i can't believe they said yeah so that yeah no because that's very legitimate advice that's what you're supposed to do if you're like a rational human being who doesn't have a phobia of oceans and so then my friend saw me not swimming against the wave and continuing to be carried out. <laughs> and he came over and finally, like, hauled me out. Oh, my God. And then I was just, like, stood How up. far away? Like, I wasn't that far. Wait. Wait. <laughs> I wasn't that far out. So anyway, that's a really bad memory. And then um, from then on, I've just really struggled with a fear of mm. oceans. But I try really hard to, like, face it. Like, I've been ocean yeah. kayaking. Yeah. I kind of just try not to look down. I think the issue is... The issue is really, like, the fear of what might be in the depths. Yeah. Like, even in really deep swimming pools as a kid, I was convinced there were, like, crocodiles down Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And so I was not about (laughs) to go in there. And then in the ocean, like, there is weird crap in there. Like, have you... If you've ever seen any documentary about the ocean, it is not cool. Well, also, just being carried off, like, just your body by itself is different from, like, sitting in a kayak and, like, knowing what you're doing. Right. So... That's true. That's very true. Uh, good for you for facing your fear. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Now, Hannah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, the reason why I was laughing earlier when Hillary asked me if I want to go first is because I had to mentally prepare myself to discuss my phobia um, because this is something I have only told a handful of people. And usually when I tell them, it's sort of met with like, oh, interesting. Or like, <laughs> you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure how to respond to that. So... Well, let's start with the let's start with the one that's less. Wow, way to bury the lead right <laughs> now. <laughs> let's right, start yeah, with start the with... one that I can manage right now. So, okay, I think this is something that a lot of people have actually, um, and it's called trypophobia, and it's just a fear of holes. It seems actually kind of common. I don't know how unusual it is, but at least people have heard of it, and mm. it's the fear of tiny little holes. Don't look at this. Don't show me the trypophobia pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, usually for me, it has to do with, like, human skin and, like, little holes being on your skin because that's, like, a sign of illness, and that's just not... Oh, my We're God. just not programmed to like that, and so... I think I have it now from Googling it. <laughs> <laughs> don't... Yeah. Okay, don't Google it. I think it's something that you don't realize you're afraid of until you see it. It's just, like, wrong. It's wrong, and I guess it's not horrible for me. I know people who get triggered by, like, uh, honeycombs and oh, things okay. like that, but... 
for me it's really just about the skin oh sometimes there's like weird little dots on my skin from something i don't know but i have a weird <laughs> wait, wait wait no what do you mean <laughs> like do you know like when you it's like maybe when you press really hard or like when you scratch really hard oh, and there's like little, little dots. bumps okay well i'm not <laughs> putting this in the podcast because <laughs> this is very like in, no, it's know, like very abstract right yeah. now okay um but anyways fear of holes my other fear is a fear of people passing gas around me <laughs> specifically specifically when <laughs> i'm like actually like feeling right now i'm worried this okay i can do this i can do this i can do this i get really freaked out when people fart around me it's mostly when men fart around me i've gotten a lot more used to like girlfriends who are close to me farting and that's generally like really fine actually that's good yeah there was one time when my friend farted around me my girlfriend farted around me and she didn't know i had a fart phobia and i was sort of just like taking it back by because i'd never heard her fart around me and <laughs> i was like oh i have like this i actually have this really bad fear of farts and she was like wow i'm really sorry i'm really sorry for doing that and then she continued to fart and so <laughs> oh my gosh so anyways yeah it's just characterized by by guys farting around me the fear is characterized <laughs> by guys farting around you. How do you feel? How do you feel when it happens? I feel sick and disturbed. <laughs> I think this is just a, it's her telling men to stop farting so much. Right. To be clear, to be clear, I am not afraid of like my own gas or my family's gas, really. She sometimes gets freaked out by when we fart yeah, around her. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. It's sort of just like, please don't ever do that ever again. <laughs> But she's totally fine with it. <laughs> well, also, she appreciates a warning. I appreciate a warning. Yeah. Or if you leave the room. Yeah, or if you leave the room, <laughs> knowing that I have a problem, that is just so considerate of you. And I'm that's great. All Honestly, I it all kind of formed recently. Like, when I came to college, it formed. I mean, college is a pretty gross place. When Hannah told me it was college, I was like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I don't think I really ever recognized that I had this fear until then. So, um, yeah, I don't want people to think that I'm like... <laughs> You know, now that's like my only trait, but <laughs> the fart fear there are girl. other parts of me that are yeah. There are other things that are interesting yeah. about me. <laughs> I think it's unusual, but I also wonder. Can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine having this? Like, how would you? No, I couldn't. Would it be something like I honestly don't know how to approach it even now? Like, I don't know if I should tell people or if I should just let it happen and sort of just like. It's like how much should I put this out there right. for my own sake? <laughs> but also not to like freak everyone out and never make friends right yeah i think it's sort of i think it's more just like i'm gonna talk about it if i become friends with someone right yeah i think that makes sense i don't think you need to go around telling random strangers that although although stranger farts are the worst yeah it's a- <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no because a big part of it is like the fear that someone is gonna do it and then not tell me they did it right next to me I do feel like it's less common, though. Like, I feel like if you're in public and you are around only people you don't know, you're, like, more nervous to fart. Is that true for guys? Men, <laughs> drop a comment. Male-identified people, drop a comment. I think it's not gen- <laughs> oh, gender. I think it's, like, what kind of person are you? Oh, yeah, Are you yeah, a yeah, nasty, disgusting... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like, are you the one who doesn't care? Right, or, like, right. doesn't think that it's a big deal? Or, like, you know... Hmm. Okay. Anyways, we're done with that discussion now. Okay. If you have any questions for any of either of us about our phobias, let us know. Or really what's more important to me is you, if you share these phobias, yes. including the fart phobia. I would love to know if someone Hana listening. needs some solidarity because I'm wondering if it's actually unusual or if it's that people are just too weird to talk about it. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that weird. Farts is farts. Everyone farts. Yeah. That's, farts that's, is farts. Be farts is farts. <laughs> that should be the title of this podcast. <laughs> farts, farts is farts. Is farts. Okay. Okay. I'm glad I got that off my chest. All right. Last segment. We know that you loved Gen Z slang from last time, so we're going to keep doing it. And I, it was very educational for me, like I said. So, um, Hannah, what do you have for me for today? Well, I think we have a little bit of time left, so I'm going to... Let's just see how many we can get through. Sure. I also wanted to say something that I didn't say last time was that I realized while looking at Gen Z slang and thinking about it that it evolves very quickly. Like... A lot of the terms that we used last year have already changed and they almost seem like outdated now, like if you were to say it, you know. And so I think that's good to keep in mind when like 
listening to this, maybe if they're unfamiliar, like, don't feel like you have to keep up at all because it, like, it's just crazy. It's crazy the way it moves. And so... She's essentially saying that for people that are my age listening to this, don't go around trying to use these because you might <laughs> sound outdated already. Because <laughs> Hannah used to teach me a bunch of words and then, like, a few weeks later, I'd be like, oh, yeah, uh... I don't know. I can't even think of it. Oh, let's get that bread. And then she'd be like, yeah, it's too much. we're not saying it's that too anymore. Much. Too much. Anyways. I <laughs> uh, also wanted to give the disclaimer that I forgot to give in the last episode of our podcast. I feel like I'm in the older, on the older end of Gen Z. And so mm-hmm. I don't fully really identify with Generation Z. And I already feel somewhat out of touch with like the newest TikTok stuff or influencer culture and at least for Gen Z slang, I feel a little bit more qualified to do it because I do understand the terms at the very least that they're using. So. And she's way closer to it than I am, so. That's true. That's true. All right, we're going we're gonna to get into it. Okay, our first, our first term today is, okay, boomer. Okay, I know what that means because you say that to me all the time. That's yeah, rude. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially just saying, like, you just did something that's really old, outdated, yeah. or like, yeah. Yeah. And you're like, okay, boomer. Yeah, good job. Okay, we're starting easy today. Okay. So one Hillary for one. Got it. <laughs> Hillary the boomer got that one. Uh, yeah, I often say this to Hillary. I do it less now, but I say it ironically to you. I don't actually use it. Like a, a lot of the times, Gen Z kids will use it to mock or dismiss attitudes that people have. A lot of the time, it's actually used when arguing with someone from an older generation. Oh. Like also, want to acknowledge that. We know what baby boomers actually means. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> we're not saying that right. we're actually baby boomers because that's a totally different generation and yeah. we want to respect that. But apparently, this slang does not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also, I got these terms from Watcher, but I also thought about a few about a few of them myself. Shout out Stephen Lim. Shout out Stephen Lim. We are confident now. <laughs> we now know we that Stephen Lim is on Watcher. <laughs> but part of their definition was that like it can be politicized um, oh, for gen z when they're talking about to uh, older generations who they see as maybe having more outdated views and i do see it as kind of like a blanket statement it's sort of making a huge assumption about a generation yeah but it's usually directed at someone from that generation that's more antiquated than the other people okay the next one is it's a phrase okay it's say psych right now say psych right now yeah Say psych. How do you spell psych? S-I-K-E. Oh. Psych? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like that. Okay. That Say word. psych right no, now. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Say psych right now? Oh, is it like... Okay, yeah, I know. Okay. I feel like I know. Mm-hmm. Okay, for example, if you were like... If you said something that was like totally... Sounded totally crazy to me. And I was like, I don't believe it. Say psych right now. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. So okay. if you were like... Yo, like, I just ate 50 pounds of chips. I'd be like, say psych right now. And you'd be like, psych? That's how you... That, okay, so, like... Yeah, that's correct. Woo, two Usually, for two. no one ever follows it up with actually saying psych. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. So, but that's really funny. That, that's the way you play it out in your head. Yeah, essentially, it just means, like, please tell me you're joking right now. Like, yeah, yeah, no yeah, way, yeah. Like, you're kidding. And it can either be good or bad, like, honestly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do people... Okay. Have you ever said that? I did in the past a little bit. Okay. I know people who do say it, but I mostly just use it when, like, my friend would be, like, say something totally... Like, I just don't believe it. And I'd be like, dude, say psych right now. Like, you're kidding me. Like, that's crazy. Like, no. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, got it, got it. Say psych right now. Dude, why are you saying it, like, with that undulation <laughs> of your voice? I don't know. <laughs> say psych right now. <laughs> really excitedly <laughs> but yeah you got it got it you two got for it. two i'm killing this game okay all right i think we're gonna do one more all right, let's do one more um, make it harder okay the next one is go off oh my god i you know. know this one yeah it's like it's like if someone is saying something super like on point about something yeah and you're like go off queen oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to get political about this in my example. So my example will be like, uh, everything's political. Um, yeah, you can be vague. Like when your friend suddenly has the courage to talk to their family about a sensitive 
topic oh, or like yeah. talk back to their parents about it and then they tell you what they said then you would be like okay go off then yes yeah. okay it's i know approval. Yeah. i don't really ever say it but i do know the meaning yeah i do use that one three for three wait okay i have one more okay. i have one more that i wasn't Challenge gonna me i wasn't gonna say this one because it's not used as much anymore but it okay. was very big about Recently? a year ago oh okay yeah all right let's hear it okay the word is yeet <sighs> i know this one <laughs> you know this one yes yeet yeah it means it means to like throw it away <laughs> yeah it's like i know this one because i love the saying yeet the whole man away <laughs> which is not which means, a saying <laughs> okay sorry i like to use that word in a phrase like that like i use i like to use yeet to say yeah break up with that guy yeet the whole man away because uh-huh. i think that's funny yeah and but also it's like i learned it was weird because i think someone told me like it has something to do with kobe yeah yeah, yeah, but I don't know yeah. where it comes well, from. Well, it's used a lot in sports, yes. Oh. Okay, so that's correct. And I'm very shocked that you got that and impressed. Um, but the official definition of yeet is the action of discarding an item at a high velocity. The official definition. The urban dictionary definition. <laughs> the official <laughs> urban dictionary definition. Yeah. Oh, so to throw something away quickly. To throw something away at a high velocity and or it can be used as a term to express excitement or energy often issued when throwing something. Yeah, like, yeet. Yeah. But then also, could you be like, hey, yeet me that ball? Or is that weird? Um, <laughs> you know, there are... Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> um, it's like, dude, she just grabbed my phone and yeeted it into the lake. It's like that. Oh you, my god, people that? actually say that? People used to say so it a lot more. Why can't you then be like, yeah, yeet me that ball? <laughs> It's like, I don't know, it's like sort of to emphasize what happened and you're just like using it in place of, oh, okay. hand me that ball. Right. Right? Okay. Okay. If you're interested, the origin of yeet is actually <laughs> from a vine that went viral a while ago, I think in 2016 oh. or something. R.I.P. Vine. It's a vine that I think people my age will be really familiar with, but to describe it, it's a high schooler, it's a girl, and she's holding a soda can and then she yells, this bitch empty, yeet. And then <laughs> she throws the can into like the crowd of kids at her school. Oh. Like who are walking in class or whatever. So yeah, now it's not really used Literary. except ironically, but literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for teaching me more Gen Z slang. I do expect more challenging words next time though. Okay. Because I know there are words I don't know. So Maybe you should teach me uh, millennial stuff that you learned. Shoot. I don't know know if I know any. Or like older terms. Old. (laughs) Oh, there is one. Okay, wait. I do know one right now. When I was growing up, people would be like, I sweat this. Oh, yeah. We said that too. You did? Yeah, it came back sort of in like God, Everything comes back. What does it mean now? The way we used it was sort of like, oh, do you sweat? Do you sweat him? I think people used to be like, I sweat things. Like, or like, I sweat. Maybe I should know. Oh. No, maybe I wasn't even cool okay, back so then. Okay, so you don't know. Yeah, maybe I didn't even know slang back then. <laughs> You're asking then. me how. What <laughs> all right, well, anyway, that's all we have for this episode of Generational Differences. Thank you so much for tuning in with us for our discussion about work and parental expectations uh, and for dealing with all of our other banter after. We'll be yeah. back next time to discuss other important issues and our personal experiences. But as always, if you have suggestions for topics for us to cover, let us know. Yep. See you guys next time. Bye.